Hi, I'm Carrie Howes, and I'm the head of regulatory at OpenSignal. Whether or not you know com different companies are making different claims, you have to be comparing apples to apples. I'm Catherine Speglia, and this is Well Technically, the tech podcast where women do the explaining. Our conversation is admittedly going to be a bit all over the place, touching on a few different things from OpenSignal's mission to some regulatory challenges and standalone 5G, but I promise it will still be informative. But first, Carrie, what is an example of a time in which being a woman has empowered you? Yeah, well, um, this is a great question. I've thought pretty hard about it. And uh, I know you usually get a lot of responses, which kind of were ones that went through my head too. Um, I think ultimately at the end of the day, uh, being a professional and being good at what I do is what matters most, um, whether I'm a woman or not. Um, but with that said, I do think, um, you know, for me, empowerment is almost a, a daily thing that I get um, from, from working and collaborating with the kind of amazing female peers and colleagues that I have in this industry. And I'm a real kind of firm believer in, uh, you know, a, I think a statement that's sometimes maybe a bit controversial, but, you know, Madeleine Albright and her whole, like, you know, there's a special place in hell for women that don't support other women. Um, I think there's a real kind of element of truth in that um, and the support that I've received and mentorship I've received and guidance um, from women in this field uh, since I've joined um, almost a decade ago, um, I think is really a testament to, to kind of our unique perspective uh, and unique experience in a sector where, you know, sadly we are still for the most part underrepresented. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's to me, it's not really one specific point in time. It's kind of an ongoing uh, experience that I have. Uh, and I have had a lot of mentors in the field that have been male just by nature of the work I do. I'm in the kind of policy and regulatory space. I'm in a heavily male dominated uh, kind of telecoms field. Um, but the kind of female colleagues and friends that I have, you know, in this sector have really helped me navigate some pretty complex questions and, and kind of nuanced challenges that I, I don't know where I'd be without them. I think I agree with that controversial quote as well. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's also like, you know, I, I look at the two sides to this. So I, I don't come from a kind of traditional tech background. Um, I'm not an engineer. Um, I also work in the regulatory space, but I'm not a lawyer. Um, so I have quite a unique background. My background is actually originally was in international development. And I've always looked at technology as a tool through which we can improve people's lives. To me, the, the kind of real power of, of mobile and, and telecoms in particular, you know, seeing the, the transformation that, that access to that technology can have for women in particular has been you know, hugely empowering. And I think it's amazing kind of seeing what that means you know, from a female perspective. You know, this completely unscripted conversation about tech's <laughs> goals and aims actually is a pretty good segue to my first question, which is how would you characterize OpenSignal's mission? Yeah, so to again, take a step back to the, the bigger picture. Um, 
really at the end of the day, OpenSignal, our entire mission is just to provide the truth in a mobile network experience. Um, so we really believe that greater transparency, uh, it'll encourage mobile network improvements. Uh, it should help consumers choose a mobile operator. It, it in theory should boost competition. And at the end of the day, it should lead to better connectivity for everyone. Um, so our analytics really touch a number of points across the industry. Um, we work with many operators around the world, but use them to make key business decisions uh, to improve their experience that they deliver in a competitive market. Uh, we also empower regulators. So those are the kind of the stakeholders that I work with. Um, and our analytics allow them to benchmark operators against a kind of globally standardized methodology that's independent. Uh, and that means that they can really strive to offer the very best digital services that um, are really essential, as we were just discussing, to kind of modern life. Um, and we, as I mentioned already, kind of our, our approach is very consumer centric. So a lot of our reports um, are used by consumers to make informed choices about their network provider. Uh, and at the end of the day, we really place innovation at the core of what we do. So we believe that, um, you know, in, uh, if you're going to be understanding the true mobile experience, um, you need to have a really robust methodology. It needs to place kind of independence and data protection and privacy uh, and really statistically um, accurate or relevant data science at, at the core of, of what you're doing. And my next question is sort of like three questions combined into one question. So we can, you know, take it piece by piece. What is the difference between QoS and QoE and how do they function together? But also where does end-to-end -end measurement fit into all of that? So this is the kind of mother of all questions in terms of the work that we do. Um, so I think firstly, it's really important to set out the, um, so QoS, quality of service and quality of experience, QoE, they're complementary, um, they're not contradictory. And sometimes um, this can get kind of framed as a, a really binary debate. Uh, and I think in my view, that's kind of reductive. It's not a very helpful starting point. Um, so really, I see them as, as you know, a compl two complementary systems. Um, one is perhaps rooted in kind of legacy uh, telephony performance monitoring while another is taking a bit more of a holistic and perhaps progressive approach, but it's not an either or um, kind of discussion. So, you know, as I, I mentioned, quality of service really focuses on network characteristics like throughput, so upload, um, download, you know, latency, jitter, packet loss, the usual, the usual suspects. Um, it's, it's useful for measuring the technical performance that a network um, can deliver. So in, in mobile, that's the access portion of a network. And QoS measurements, they often show what the network is, you know, generally, they, they show what the network is technically able to deliver. Um, so regulators in the kind of regulatory context, they might rely on drive testing uh, or data that's, that's limited to kind of what is the maximum throughput that a network can deliver. Um, the, the challenge is, if, if you're only considering quality of service measurements, is you don't know kind of where those measurements, if those measurements have been optimized, um, you know, that in theory could mean that uh, a measurement has been run to a test server at 3 a.m. Uh, on a top of the line device and no one on the network is using the network. And, you know, lo and behold, you get a pretty, pretty fast speed. So it really only tells one part of the story. So when you're talking about quality of experience, uh, it's really more focused on the end user's kind of overall experience, the kind of clue is in the name. Um, 
So the, the network service that a consumer is receiving is really the litmus test, litmus test here. Uh, so end to what we call end-to-end -end quality of experience that looks at the full connectivity chain, so to speak. It breaks down where the service degradation might be occurring um, from a device all the way through to a content delivery network of whatever service a consumer is trying to use. So that could be um, you know, Akamai, it could be Amazon, it could be YouTube. Um, and it really tries to um, kind of understand where the constraints in, in service might be, where that service degradation might be taking place. Um, that could be an issue with a particular device. Uh, there could be throttling that's occurring that's impacting video experience. Um, there could be various kind of caching or hosting agreements that a carrier has with particular content providers. All of those things can have a huge impact on how you stream a video or how you use a, a voice app and the experience that you receive from those services. But at the end of the day, if you're a regulator or, or a carrier for that matter, and you're only looking at reported throughput speeds, you're not going to spot where that degradation is happening. You are getting a seriously limited um, view of, of, of kind of that full experience. So again, it's, it's not saying that there isn't room for QoS and QoE. In fact, if anything, they, we know that they're, they're complementary um, approaches, but there is a real risk, I think, that if you are only relying on QoE, um, or sorry, on QoS, you know, worst case scenario, you could actually be kind of compounding digital exclusion because you're relying on, on data that's very limited in scope and it's not actually reflecting what consumers in your country are experiencing. Um, so it's a, a, a risk of being a little bit of a tick box exercise. Um, and I think that's a, a really kind of critical thing that as an industry we need to address um, that for a very long time we've been focused overly focused maybe on speeds and not on what that speed actually means, um, whether the connectivity that people are receiving is meaningful um, and that it's, it's you know, enough for them to access the services in a, in a high quality way that, that they should be. Um, so yeah, again, it's, it's not a binary kind of debate. I don't think there's a binary solution. Um, <clears throat> But I think you know it's really important that that if we're going to be relying on data uh, to make some of these big policy and regulatory decisions, that the data we're using is is taking a holistic perspective and it's accurate and, and independent. Um, so I don't know if that, hopefully that answers at least part of your question. <laughs> yeah, that was great. That that was really interesting. And actually breaking from script for a moment here. Um, so the question that I have next on here is some of the biggest regulatory issues or hurdles. And I do feel like you kind of, that's sort of what we were, you were just speaking to. And I'm wondering if maybe it would be a good idea to just skip to the digital divide question, particularly because I think what you mentioned about there's a focus on speed, but not the reality of, of what users are experiencing, which I think can be applied to some of the issues we've had around the digital divide. Yep. as well, right? We had this idea that these rural areas were more covered than they were. We realized that was wrong. Yep. <laughs> so we are trying to fix that. And my question for you is what's the best way to support those who are trying to fix the digital divide? And what does our industry as a whole need to be doing to address that? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I love this question because this is, this is kind of what I've, the kind of question I've been working on for the most of my career, to be honest. Um, and I think there are a couple of points here. So we talk about the digital divide. Um, I think it's really important we consider both the supply and the demand side constraints to the digital divide. Um, oftentimes in this, in this space, uh, we focus a lot on supply. So we focus a lot on um, how do we deploy in rural areas? How do we incentivize network deployment in rural areas? Because we know the business case isn't great. Um, this is a really complex challenge though. So it's not gonna be solved simply by you know, providing you know, the connectivity that the people need by building the base stations, by, you know, subsidizing rural deployment. Um, the connectivity we're providing, it needs to be relevant as well. It needs to be affordable. It needs to be meaningful. It needs to be high quality. Um, and in turn, that, that will drive adoption, um, which is one way of kind of improving the return on investment um, for the carriers that are deploying in areas which historically have been very difficult to justify that business case. Um, again, and I say, you know, it needs to be high quality, it needs to be high quality from an end user perspective. <laughs> so like you just said, you know, we've all been there where we go on a holiday and we go to, a, I don't know, a nice remote location and you have no service, but when you go to check the coverage map that says there's service there. Um, or the service that you have is just not consistent it's not you know our our one of our co-founders our ceo brendan i know i think his kind of main light bulb moment for founding open signal was he was in san francisco and you know kept having his his service drop in and out and that's you know in a one of the the biggest cities in the us it's in one of the you know the arguably the kind of center of the tech universe um so if we can't even understand uh what high quality connectivity actually you know what the actual real world situation is in san francisco then you know we've got a real challenge on our hands in terms of closing this digital divide um so again i mentioned we need to look at this from a demand side and a, a supply side kind of perspective so demand side constraints might include things like um, availability and affordability of devices uh, whether content is relevant and available in a local language. Um, there might be wider issues that limit access to a phone. So I'm going to talk in the kind of emerging market context. Many countries that are on a prepay system, you've got to provide a formal form of identity. If you don't have a form of ID, you can't get a SIM card. So how do we close the digital divide if there are these demand drivers which are stopping people from even accessing a, a SIM? Um, on the supply side, from a regulatory perspective, there are lots of things governments, you know, can do, and and some really interesting uh, innovations I think have come out in the last few years in terms of how we we bridge that gap. Um, there, there's a lot that can be done around incentivizing investments where there's a poor business case, so you know, rural rural areas. Um, I think again, you know, there's there's a a pretty big uh, body of evidence that that points to the regulation, you know, really needs to be proportionate. It should be predictable. Uh, it should be evidence-based in order to drive that investment. Uh, and if if regulators are going to be using, you know, data and evidence, it really needs to be independent. Um, it needs to be data that is, you know, representing the people, um, or it's, you know, it's it's 
showing what the people that they represent are actually experiencing. Because uh, at the end of the day, if I'm a consumer and I'm not getting the service I should be getting and have been told I should be getting, I'm, I'm going to call two entities. I'm going to probably call my provider and I might file a complaint with a regulator if I'm that concerned about it. So, you know, good regulators that are, are representing, um, you know, the, the people that they're, you know, consumers, they, they really need to be looking at this from a, a consumer perspective. What you mentioned about there's a focus on speed, but not the reality of, of what users are experiencing, which I think can be applied to some of the issues we've had around the digital divide as well, right? We had this idea that these rural areas were more covered than they were. We realized that was wrong. So we are trying to fix that. And my question for you is what's the best way to support those who are trying to fix the digital divide? And what does our industry as a whole need to be doing to address that? Yeah. So, I mean, I love this question because this is, this is kind of what I've, the kind of question I've been working on for the most of my career, to be honest. Um, and I think there are a couple of points here. So we talk about the digital divide. Um, I think it's really important. We consider both the supply and the demand side constraints to the digital divide. Um, oftentimes in this, in this space, uh, we focus a lot on supply. So we focus a lot on um, how do we deploy in rural areas? How do we incentivize network deployment in rural areas? Because we know the business case isn't great. Um, this is a really complex challenge though. So it's not gonna be solved simply by you know, providing you know, the connectivity that the people need by building the base stations, by you know, subsidizing rural deployment. Um, the connectivity we're providing, it needs to be relevant as well. It needs to be affordable, it needs to be meaningful, it needs to be high quality. Um, and in turn, that, that will drive adoption, um, which is one way of kind of improving the return on investment um, for the carriers that are deploying in areas which historically have been very difficult to justify that business case. Um, again, and I say, you know, it needs to be high quality, it needs to be high quality from an end user perspective. <laughs> so like you just said, you know, we've all been there where we, go on a holiday and we go to a, I don't know, nice remote location and you have no service, but we go to check the coverage map that says there's service there. Um, or the service that you have is just not consistent. It's not, you know, our, our, one of our co-founders, our CEO, Brendan, I know, I think his kind of main light bulb moment for founding OpenSignal was he was in San Francisco and you know, kept having his, his service drop in and out. And that's, you know, in a, one of the, the biggest cities in the U.S. It's in one of the, you know, the, arguably the kind of center of the tech universe. Um, so if we can't even understand uh, what high quality connectivity actually, you know, what the actual real world situation is in San Francisco, then, you know, we've got a real challenge on our hands in terms of closing this digital divide. Um, so again, I mentioned we need to look at this from a demand side and a, a supply side kind of perspective. So demand side constraints might include things like um, availability and affordability of devices, uh, whether content is relevant and available in a local language. Um, there might be wider issues that limit access to 
a phone. So I'm going to talk in the kind of emerging market context. Many countries that are on a prepay system, you've got to provide a formal form of identity. If you don't have a form of ID, you can't get a SIM card. So how do we close the digital divide if there are these demand drivers which are stopping people from even accessing a, a SIM? Um, on the supply side, from a, a regulatory perspective, there are lots of things governments you know, can do and, and some really interesting uh, innovations I think have come out in the last few years in terms of how we, we bridge that gap. Um, there's a lot that can be done around incentivizing investments where there's a poor business case, so you know, rural, rural areas. Um, I think, again, you know, there's, there's a, a pretty big uh, body of evidence that, that points to the regulation you know, really needs to be proportionate, it should be predictable. Uh, it should be evidence-based in order to drive that investment. Uh, and if, if regulators are going to be using you know, data and evidence, it really needs to be independent. Um, it needs to be data that is you know, representing the people um, or it's, you know, it's, it's showing what the people that they represent are actually experiencing. Because uh, at the end of the day, if I'm a consumer and I'm not getting the service I should be getting and have been told I should be getting, I'm, I'm going to call two entities. I'm going to probably call my provider and I might file a complaint with a regulator if I'm that concerned about it. So, you know, good regulators that are, are representing, um, you know, the, the people that they're, you know, consumers, they, they really need to be looking at this from a, a consumer perspective. Um, yeah, so I think there's, there's a lot of points in there. Uh, but again, really taking a holistic approach to this, not getting too tied up in what a network is technically capable of delivering um, and also understanding that it's not just about providing the technology. It's not just about building out these networks. We really need to think through um, that kind of demand side as well. My last question is not about anything we've really talked about so far on this podcast, but I am in the middle of writing a status of 5G report. So this is helpful to me personally. Why is 5G standalone, or I should say standalone 5G, the goal? And how far away are we from achieving this goal? When I say we, I don't even know if I mean like the US, <laughs> the world, I don't know. When can we expect SA 5G? Yeah, so, um, so this question made me laugh because it really depends on who you ask. <laughs> You're going to get a lot of different answers for this. Um, but ultimately, kind of standalone 5G, it, it should result in a kind of better network experience. I think it's what industry, and I use that term broadly, is calling the kind of true 5G performance. Um, that's, that's open to interpretation in terms of who you ask. But non-standalone 5G, so NSA 5G is it's using kind of existing network components to deliver 5G. So you'll have more spectrum and bandwidth, but right now you've got fewer users kind of on it. So you'll still get good, good performance, good experience, but it's not really the kind of full 5G experience, so to speak. And we know that deploying new network technology is expensive for, for operators. So, so with 5G, these you know, operators, they've got to upgrade base station sites to new 5G antennas. They've got baseband computing and they need to upgrade backhaul links and connect each site to the core and support you know, all of this great speed and capacity that comes along with 5G. 
but they need to judge where to focus their 5G investments to maximize the experience for their users. Um, so I think it's really important that we see this more as a transition process in order to invest in these networks, a huge transition is needed. So right now the functionalities of standalone 5G aren't in full demand. So the networks aren't necessarily loaded in the same way they will be in the future. But what is clear is that standalone 5G is kind of the, the future of the 5G experience. So it makes it even more important to understand what the, the real world experience is and, and how that matches industry claims kind of going off what we were just talking about you know the challenge really here is that there are very few commercially available 5g you know standalone 5g networks as of today um uh, and open single we recently um kind of were reviewing our 5g country report for the us uh and you know t-mobile is, is in the us is, is one of the first five first live 5g standalone 5g is such a tongue twister one of the first live standalone 5G deployments. Um, and we found that in, in that 5G country report we published, so we publish these reports on a really standard cadence every six months. It's really important to us that, that these country reports are kind of in a predictable standard format. Uh, and what we found is that uh, T-Mobile's mobile experience, which included 5G availability and 5G download speed had really improved quite significantly compared to the report from six months prior. And what we found uh, in, in uh, analyzing this early standalone 5G experience is that our, our users' time uh, connected to 5G significantly increased after the standalone network launched. Uh, there was a larger jump, interestingly, in rural areas compared with urban. Um, and given our discussion on the digital divide, you know, historically that's amplified in rural areas. So that was a really interesting insight. And in terms of latency, we saw that the responsiveness of the 5G experience improved with standalone over um, non-standalone 5G as latencies fell. But our users didn't experience faster speeds on standalone 5G. And that's largely because of the way that T-Mobile has kind of focused its, its use of standalone on existing 5G availability. It's using the 600 megahertz band. Uh, that's likely to change in 2021. So newer smartphones will kind of come onto the market that are able to connect simultaneously both to T-Mobile 600 megahertz and the 2.5 gigahertz 5G bands. Um, I think broadly speaking, we know that standalone will enable things like network slicing uh, and other advanced services. And, and that's, you know, we don't have time to go into that today. But that's really a game changer for industry uh, in terms of, of the standalone proposition. Um, but all of this to say is, is really that timing will vary operator by operator, market to market. That's the most annoying answer, but there's such a huge range of market specific commercial, technical, regulatory factors that these operators have to balance. Carrie, this was all really great. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. My absolute pleasure. It's been fun to jump from topic to topic. <laughs> I know. I, I don't know how these questions ended up all over the place. One of those days, I guess. Oh, it's been a, it's been a real joy. And I think, you know, we, we, we've touched on so many things, but at the end of the day, it's really driven home the point that, you know, these, these innovations are things that there isn't one simple answer, you know, they're complex and they're nuanced. Uh, but, but we need to be really looking to independent evidence that can help us make decisions on how, you know, how, and if, if these services, you know, are regulated in the future.
Technically is an Arden Media production. For advertising inquiries, contact Danny Miller at dmiller at ardenmedia.com. Today's show was produced and edited by me, Catherine Speglia.